Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Thank you so much for joining us. Maurice and I are extremely uh, passionate about this topic for today. It is one that is near and dear to our hearts. I do want to start off with a disclaimer, however, that the content of this episode are strictly our stories and should not uh, replace professional help should you need it. Yeah, Lisette, thank you so much uh, for that disclaimer and thank you to the listeners for joining us today. This definitely is something that I'll be honest, probably just within the last six or seven months has meant more to me than than it did prior to that. And and this is a a topic that that I think we're going to need to invest time in. And so it is uh, I know we're already planning on having a a follow up episode to this um, to talk a little bit more. But um, why don't you just get us started? I mean, you know, when we talk about mental health, uh, first off, that's a big win. When we talk about mental health, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and sometimes that's not often enough. But for you, what, what has that experience been? What have those two words meant to you? When we landed on this topic for this episode, I'll be honest, I thought I had overcome that. I don't know if I want to call it shame or stigma. Um, but I was a little reluctant and I had to really think about how much I was willing to disclose. Um, but ultimately, I think that what makes our podcast so engaging, Maurice, is our dynamic and our transparency and how honest we are um, with, with the audience. And so, you know, I feel comfortable sharing some pretty personal detail that I, I think many people may not even know. It's funny because people will often tell me, oh, Lisette, you look like you're never worried or you're always so put together and seem so prepared. And I just want to say, yeah, that's anxiety. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of things that I anticipate. And so in order to be prepared for things that are, you know, out of my control, as prepared as you think you can be, I'm a planner. And so uh, this really stems back to Um, some very pivotal moments in my life. So I want to take us back to 2012. I birthed my beautiful son, Maxwell, and I was at home. So Maxwell was born end of October, and so I was on maternity leave. Early December, my my cousin died by suicide. And it it rocked our world. It It was absolutely devastating. And then a short, I want to say about a week later, um, the Sandy Hook uh, shooting took place. And I just remember, one, I was 
at home, you know, anxious as a new mom, all alone, and then grieving my cousin, and then seeing Sandy Hook unfold on the news. And I think that was the perfect storm to to bring some extremely painful like memories to the surface. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong, but I knew something was off. People talk about, not even as much as they should, but people talk about postpartum depression. No one really talks about postpartum anxiety. And so I really think that that's what I was experiencing on top of, you know, everything that was occurring. And I decided to seek counseling, but I was so nervous about it. I, I remember talking to family and even friends and, you know, in the black and brown communities, we, we sometimes say things that we don't really think about, we don't think about it before we say it, but it was like the typical, oh, that's for crazy people or what is that going to do? How is that going to help you? But I just knew, I knew I had to talk to someone. And so I did. And I was very lucky um, to have a wonderful, wonderful therapist who said, listen, coming to counseling is, is also um, about like finding that perfect fit. And if you don't feel like I am that, that fit for you as a therapist, please find someone else, but don't stop. And wow. I think that was so important. Yeah, that's, that, that, that is, um, I think, again, we live in this capitalist world mm-hmm. where things are about making money. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, for a therapist to say, I'm willing to give up a client, which is a paycheck mm-hmm. at the end of the day, because I'm w- wanting to help you. I think that that's a sign right there, right? That, that maybe that was a, a great person. Can you talk some more about, you know, what, what, what was that experience? She was fantastic. And so I felt very comfortable and safe, but just even that disclaimer of if I'm not a good fit for you, please don't stop, you know, find someone else that will meet your needs. She was an Asian woman. And I mentioned that because looking back through those conversations, it wasn't just the counseling. She also was very intentional about helping me unpack some of the cultural nuances that were contributing to not only my anxiety, but some of the stigma and how do I have those conversations with people closest to me. She was very aware of the fact that I am a Mexican American woman and that that has implications, that that means something, especially on this journey to uh, mental well-being. that piece right there is huge, and and you uh, must have been reading my mind. I was going to ask about that because one of the things that does show up in uh, mental health research is this idea that there simply are not a lot of black and brown uh, mental health professionals, mm. and as a result, um, black and brown people do not always feel comfortable going to seek mental health care. Um, so while this was not a, a, a black or brown person, her being someone who was open to the idea that culture has an impact on the way that we live, the way that we were raised, the way we think about things, mm-hmm. the way that we experience the world, 
it sounds like that made a huge impact. Huge. And I mean, I don't want to jump around here, but that did not become apparent until I went to counseling and ended up with a different uh, therapist and he was a white male. And that was so different. It was good, but it was very, very different. So in that, some of those sessions, uh, my therapist helped me understand that what was manifesting as an adult really stemmed from the trauma that I endured during my childhood. If you've listened to some of our other episodes, I grew up in, in Chicago, back in of the Yards neighborhood, and then eventually moved to Waukegan. Um, but some of my uh, memories from, from living there, you know, uh, gunfire right outside our window, and then seeing someone, you know, dying right outside our window. And my dad worked second shift, so he would get home late. And I would always worry about something happening to him as he was entering the door and that he'd get caught in that crossfire. So that made me develop some very anxious tendencies that I didn't even know I had until I got older. I also had a very emotionally and mentally abusive babysitter that um, just did some horrible things. And again, that too impacted the way my brain was wired at an early age. And then fast forward, um, when the NIU shooting happened, I was a community advisor and I had residents on my floor who were in the room, they were, Cole Hall, they were there. And that, so all of these things, that's why Sandy Hook triggered me so much. It took me back to that time in NIU, which also took me back to my childhood and my fear of like guns and gunfire, anything like that just gives me a lot of anxiety. She helped me really see how trauma at an early age really does, you carry that with you. My mom was a worrier, is a worrier. <laughs> and so I would see her worry about different things or I'd overhear her, you know, sharing things that she wasn't telling me directly, but I internalized it. And I too then would worry about is the police going to pull my dad over or are we going to have enough money for things or just anything? And when you hear that, you also become a warrior. So I had a tremendous experience, but it was hard to admit that I needed help because we hear it so much. I remember hearing it like that's, that's some white people stuff. White people go to counseling. Why would you go out there and tell somebody else your business? And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? I mean, yeah, there, there are certain things that, that are supposed to stay in the family, right? And, and that's family business, and you don't share those things. You know, you, you mentioned a couple of things that I think hit with me as well, that February 14th, 2008 was my 20th birthday. I had friends who had, were attending NIU. I had a friend who skipped class that day. Uh, we talked on the phone that afternoon. I remember turning on the news and, and seeing my hometown hospital or helicopters, you know, flying around and, and people being transferred to, to the hospital. Just thinking through some of those things, thinking about growing up uh, with some level of poverty. And, you know, for me, my mom 
was sick from probably age 12. No, I take that back. Fifth grade was the first time I remember being told that my mom might not make it out of the hospital. Mm. And between 11 and today, that's happened numerous other times. My mother went out of the year 2017 in the hospital and came into 2018 in the hospital. And she told me, I don't think I'm going to come home from the hospital. For me, up until uh, 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 this year, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but up until this year, my answer for that was always, I'm going to pray about it. And that was always sufficient. I, it was always enough for me to walk out with my head held up and, and, well, look, God took care of her last time, and so he's going to do it again. And that was always sufficient for so many different experiences that I think about. You know, Lisette, I know that that you and I have talked a little bit about faith and some of our listeners may be, you know, people of faith. What part did faith play for you in kind of dealing with um, or maybe not dealing with um, anxiety and depression? That, that was, again, I, mean, I really feel truly blessed that I had such a phenomenal uh, therapist because not only did she address that cultural piece, but she did ask me, you know, some of those religious questions. I had a lot of guilt for uh, not being able to pray about it and feeling okay. I felt like it was a lack of faith on my part. But then the anxiety would say, and God is going to punish you for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, so you don't you don't believe. So it, so it just, it just was a cycle and it kept building and building. And she also helped me understand that because of faith and culture, I developed a lot of like, I would wager with God. Like God, if you could just make sure my dad gets home safe, I'm going to make sure that I, as a little kid, I make sure that I'll clean the room and do everything my mom tells me. I won't talk back. <laughs> you know, all those other you things. You was lying. You was talking back. <laughs> stop um <laughs> but I did I, I I had these like rituals which then she helped me understand that there was some underlying OCD and we hear OCD being thrown around like oh my calendar is so pretty and color-coded I have OCD no but for me it was it was some of those rituals that that uh we don't think about and we have to remember that there's a spectrum you know, like anxiety, there's a, there's a spectrum. OCD, there's a spectrum of like how that shows up. It's not like you're going to fall within each like symptom. It's all going to be different. Every case is unique. So when she told me that like my secondary diagnosis was OCD, I was like blown away because I was thinking of checking the doorknob a million times. You know, that's the stuff that we see. And when she told me that, I was just like, oh my goodness. So those rituals, religion definitely played a part. It because at church you hear like pray about it. What is that? What is that quote? Maybe you would know. Um, if you pray, then don't worry. But if you worry, don't pray. Goodness, I hated that quote. Oh, I hated that quote because it just was not enough. It actually increased my anxiety. It's it's uh. It's one of those preacherisms. 
Mm. It's one of those preacherisms where I think that there are times that there becomes a disconnect because we we know what the scripture says. The scripture, there is a scripture that directly says, be anxious for nothing. Like don't, don't, don't be, don't be, you know, worried. In fact, there's an, another scripture where it says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worries of its own. Yep. I remember that one too. And, and, and you're worried about tomorrow. And I think there's, there's tremendous wisdom in both of those scriptures when they are understood in the context of the rest I think I have been able to always come to mental health with a great sense of empathy. But Lissette, if I'm honest with you, again, up until 2020, my answer was, you just got to pray about it. You got to increase your faith. You got to just read the word more. You just got to, you, you got to believe more because for me, that had been sufficient. And God humbled me this year. God humbled me this year and allowed me to recognize that anxiety is something that's, that's real. It's not something I'm choosing. Nobody would choose anxiety. No. And, and it's, it's something that you can't see. I think that's really part of the problem, right? Is like, if somebody has cancer, you can see it. Yeah. You, that's an excellent point. And, and again, I go back to how I hear so often, and I'll be honest, there are times where I feel like I was not afforded empathy or understanding because people thought I had it all together. When really it was because of my anxiety, I had to be thinking 10 steps ahead. That really resonates with me, Maurice. Because that other quote that be kind to everyone because everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about, I feel like that is literally me. And so I appreciate you acknowledging that 2020 for you has humbled you because the praying would have been sufficient. And now you, I think, have a better or a different perspective. Could you tell us why 2020 has been that year for you? As a high schooler uh, with an older brother who had joined the Nation of Islam, I began to gain a sense of black consciousness. As a college student, I increased in that sense of black consciousness. When Tamir Rice was shot and killed by the police. I went into practice the next day and was coaching a middle school boys basketball team that was over half young men of color. They were not following my instructions and I put them on the line and before we ran, I said there was a 12 year old black boy didn't follow instructions fast enough. Please understand that my job here today is more than basketball. And yet I prayed about it and I was okay. When Ahmad Arbery was killed this year and I was hurt by that, I saw the video, I was hurt by it because I fully expected that nothing would happen 
which was the pattern. But I prayed about it and I convinced myself, I think really already at that point I wasn't okay, but I convinced myself I was okay. When I watched the eight minutes and 40 some seconds of George Floyd, I stopped being okay. And that was on a Monday, May 25th. By that Wednesday, I woke up with a stomach ache that I'm actually feeling right now as I'm talking about it. Mm -hmm. And for two weeks in a row, I prayed. I said, God, you got to take care. I don't know what this is. I, do I have, do I, have, you know, I started thinking about um, a top. I said, maybe I've got some, maybe I got colon cancer. Do I need to go to the doctor? What's going on? Finally, I, I Google searched it. And the first thing that popped up was anxiety. And what happens is you, you deal with this anxiety and then your stomach hurts because of the anxiety. And then you're worried about the stomach pain. And so it adds anxiety, right? Yeah. And, and it builds and it builds and it builds. And, um, and my pastor posted something. He joined in on a conversation. My pastor uh, is a white man, a man who I love dearly, who has been very much a father figure to me, but posted something um, negative about the protest and everything going on. And so I, I went to him that night and I talked to him at church and he acknowledged I shouldn't have posted that. It was out of, it was out of place. I shouldn't have done that. And we prayed together and I felt better the next day, but I still have these bouts now. Mm -hmm. And I realized that one of the things was not just because I had already seen the police brutality. I'd already seen black men, killed on internet videos and nothing happened at the end of it. But one of the things that really caused the anxiety was that people that I cared about and people that said they cared about me who weren't willing to be empathetic, mm -hmm. they weren't willing to believe that what I was saying hurt me, hurt me. They, they, they told me I was believing the lies of the leftist media that my experience as a college-educated black man, that, that somehow I, I was not intelligent enough to be able to talk about my own experience, but that instead I was being bamboozled. And that hurts. Yeah, we really have to have this reckoning, right, with, with religion and, and mental health. But I also think about just our students. What you're describing to me also sounds a lot like racial trauma. And when we talk about ACEs and trauma-informed practices, I wish there was more talk about how race plays into that. Because you and I both know that being from marginalized groups, colors our experience, right? It's, it, it, it impacts our everyday lives. And so I think about our students. And as I was hearing you talk, I, I just, I got the knot in my throat because I think of those little students watching this, they're seeing this too. They're carrying this with them. You know, when we were talking about going back to school and definitely COVID is also gonna be another layer of trauma, right? Especially if you've lost a loved one. But unfortunately, I think we moved away from how do we talk about these important issues like Breonna Taylor, like, you know, um, Ahmaud Arbery, and, and how do we respond to that 
Because that's trauma. Yeah, it it is. It is. And 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 the response for some folk is how can you talk about traumatic experiences as, as a black man when you have a master's degree? How can you complain? And I don't I don't know how to help people to understand it, particularly people who don't want to understand it. They're not interested in understanding it. They, they, they're not willing to have empathy. If you could have empathy, then you could begin to understand that even though nobody likes it when the police pull in behind them, we all step on the brakes. That's universal, that's human. <laughs> Our students, as you mentioned, are experiencing that as well. I've talked to students in our target program and students in, in our behavior and emotional disorder program. And um, as I was preparing for this episode, I, you know, I was listening to another uh, radio show about this same topic. And one of the things that they said was, you know, that if a black male and white male present similar uh, disruptive behavior, the black male is diagnosed with some type of disruptive dis disorder. And, and the white males uh, is diagnosed with anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. Well, both of those are treated very differently by society and by schools. Mm -hmm. And so now all of a sudden you have this black male who saw his father shot and killed in front of him. Well, Maurice, what if it's not even just, you know, shot and killed in front of you? It's seeing it in the media. See, because now there's this added layer of things go viral. And unfortunately, people will share things for likes and for views. I remember people, there was a group of people saying, please stop sharing those videos. Because on the one hand, yes, then we can, to a certain extent, see what happened. But on the other side, it was, we're also perpetuating and perhaps triggering so much more trauma. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Because you say, you know, maybe that child saw their dad shot and killed in front of them. But maybe not. Maybe it is just through social media. And on the other side, too, when you say society treats them so differently, you know, Brett is a social worker. He worked at Sheridan Corrections for a while. And he said that majority of the inmates and his clients had trauma. And that's why they were there. And majority of them were black and brown men. Yeah. To, to respond to that video part first, I have, I have made a personal decision that moving forward, I will read about these things, but I cannot watch life leave the body of a person. So I think we, 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 have, to, we have to get away from that. We know, and I, I've thought about this, regardless of what color you are, regardless of, of even if things have gotten better in your life, understand that that, that trauma can have a long-lasting impact. I, I talked with someone very close to me who, who had trauma within the first three years of life, and then things got better. And as I began to learn more about trauma, I was wondering, okay, you know, look, I've seen your life. I've seen how good things have been since then. 
And, and that brain is still wired to say, who's going to leave me? Who's going to hurt me? And so that trust becomes more difficult. All of these things, you know, become more difficult and, and can still have a very negative impact on, on relationships. You know, I want to add to that because when, thank you for bringing this up, because when I sought treatment the first time, when I wanted to talk to someone, my mom, I know this was coming from a loving place and I love her and she's so sweet. But she would tell me, mija, tienes todo. You have everything. You have a great career. You have a beautiful home. You have a beautiful baby. You have a wonderful and doting husband. And again, when you're hardwired that way, that didn't help me. That made it worse. Because then I was like, you're right. Why is there still something wrong with me? You're absolutely right. And not only do I have all of this going, I'm going to ruin it. I'm going to sabotage. Like I just had all of these fears. And so if you're here, if you're listening out there, if you're talking to someone who struggles with mental illness, going down the list of the reasons why their life is amazing is not going to help. And I know that may come from a very loving place because you don't know what else to do and you're trying to be helpful, please know that that actually can make it worse. Because then I had more guilt and more anxiety that I was gonna lose it all. The stakes were suddenly higher. But I do wanna take us, um, cause I think we're running a little long here on time, but I do wanna take us into this like next direction. Would you, and I don't know if it's too personal for you, but would you now, advise someone to seek professional help and where are you at right now in your journey and well-being the direct answer to question number one is yes i i have not i have not yet deemed it necessary mm, that's a slippery slope <laughs> I, I do not i am not against it i think some people very close to me do definitely still hold that that stigma. I've got some family that I think um, are definitely like they don't get it. They don't get it, and so they mm -hmm. struggle with it sometimes. Um, even looking at like, for example, addiction as mental health, right? Mm -hmm. Except that there's also right, and, and there is some mental health that has that physical part too, that physiological part. But addiction has both the mental health and the physiological part. And, and there are some folks who, who struggle to get that. I would, listen, if I need help, I'm gonna ask for help. Right. And, and, and I pride myself on humility, mm -hmm. right? Which sounds contradictory, but I pride myself on humility. I, I, I'm, not, I'm never gonna miss out on something, right? I'm, I'm not gonna let you eat all the food in front of me and I'm just gonna sit here hungry. If you got food and I'm hungry, I'm like, let's say, let me get a bite of that, please. Bro, I haven't eaten. Yeah, he is. A, he's a humble brag for sure. So I know he'll ask for help if he needs it. <laughs> I, did I come at you a little bit? No, that's all right. That's that's the truth, though. It is Maurice what it is. The humble brag, yes. So um, for me, if there's anyone out there who is perhaps questioning whether or not uh, they should seek help, I'm all about it. And I've I've noticed that. 
my closest friends and family. Um, the more forthcoming I was about my own mental well-being, the more that they were willing to talk about their own, I don't want to say issues, but you know, the things that, that they were going through. Honestly, now that I've been through it, I feel like everyone, regardless of status, background, gender, any of that, we all could use someone to talk to who is unbiased, who's that neutral party, who has the training and the knowledge to help us work through some things. We all have our things. And so what I've realized is that the more willing we are to talk about it, the more people are, are willing to, to get the help that they need. I can't even imagine, I'm going to be very honest, I cannot imagine where I would be had I not talked to someone 10 years ago. I, I, or however long ago that was, I don't know where I would be. I'm in, in a much better place. I am able to, you know, I don't know. I have so much more joy, like in the simple things. And it has been really a blessing. And another thing, if, if you already are seeking counseling and you're like, oh, is this going to be a lifelong thing? You may. Life has its ups and downs. My favorite uh, quote is, don't let your highs get too high and don't let your lows get too low. Because life will be that roller coaster. And if, guess what? If I need to go and things get, if I'm going through a rough patch, I will seek help again before I know that if I let it go too long, then it just gets worse and worse and worse. So I recommend it. Yeah, if, if, if we had more time, I would talk just a little bit about, because for you, anxiety has caused you to be organized. For me, anxiety shows up in shutdown behavior. When I know I should be working on something and I'm just like, I just, I'm not going to get this done. So I guess I just, you know, and, um, and but here's the thing Maurice with you. You're so like, I feel like that's still, again, it gets misperceived, right? Like, oh, it's just laid back. Whereas me, if I'm like organizing on top of things, it's like, no, oh, she's kind of Look at her all planny and annoying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's so different, the response. Yeah. You, it may manifest as avoidance, but on the outside, you're chilling, you're laid back, you're cool. And for me, I, although I don't think I'm as wound up as I used to be, I really have taken it down several notches. But I think Brett could probably attest to that better than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, look, let's get out of here. Let's let our listeners go and, um, you know, finish their exercise routine. Whatever it is you're doing right now as you're listening. We thank you so much uh, for listening. Um, it is our tradition uh, to just, you know, do one takeaway. Um, you know, what, what's, what's, what's yours? You think on that. I've got mine ready to go. So I'm, I'm going to jump in. I just want people to have empathy. That's it. I, I, I hope literally as we're recording this right now, um, again, here goes my humble brag, right? My buddy uh, had nominated me for the NBC5 uh, Making a Difference Award. And so people are posting on my timeline, all this stuff. 
and as I'm making this right, my mind is thinking through what do I need to do as a principal? What, am I doing a good enough job? I'm not right. And so just have empathy. Again, you don't know necessarily what everybody is going through. Empathy, empathy, empathy. If somebody tells you they're hurting, right? I think Sammy Rangel said it very well in our last episode. You don't have to concede. You, you, you don't have to agree or disagree. You can just listen. And that's what empathy is about. Incredibly well said. Mine really goes along the lines of that. But I think for 2020, for all of you listeners out there, black and brown folks, but especially black folks, right? We're not okay. Look at me, we. <laughs> you know what I meant. I was gonna let you slide on it too. I was gonna let you slide because I knew what you meant. But it, it has been tough, and you know all my girlfriends and, and, and my friends, and just, it has been tough on our mental health. You know, I feel like it is really, really difficult. So kindness, just be kind and stop making judgment. Just be kind. But I think right now, especially people of color are really struggling. and. Um, I think we're sometimes depicted as resilient, but but sometimes people are tired of being strong. Sometimes we want to be nurtured. Sometimes we want someone to take care of us. Sometimes we want to be gentle. Sometimes we want to let our guard down. So yes, we can be resilient, but we don't always wanna, we don't always wanna be tough. That's a lot, that's a big burden. And it takes a toll on you mentally. So, so be kind. And we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. We already are in the works for a part two with a mental health professional that we're absolutely excited to have. So we hope we'll, you'll join us for part two. For Black, Brown, and Bilingue, I am one of your hosts, Lisette Jacobson. And I'm your other host, Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Thank <music> you.